I would like to call your attention this evening to the words found in Paul's epistle to the Romans in chapter 8, verses 26 and 27. Verses 26 and 27 in the 8th chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Now here we come to a, a fresh statement. The word likewise at the beginning of verse 26 reminds us immediately that the apostle is at any rate uh, adding on to what he has just been dealing with. There we've seen in verses 24 and 25 that the apostle was summing up his great argument about the place of the tribulations and trials in the life of the Christian and showing him how he should overcome them. He sums it up. He says, we are saved in hope. That's the whole position in which we are. And then he goes on to drive it home, as we've seen, by saying that hope that he's seen is not hope for what a man sees, why does he yet hope for? And that therefore our position must be this, that we go on in hope for that which we see not. And we do so with uh, patience and yet earnest expectation. We are earnestly waiting through patience for that hope which we have not yet seen, but which we believe, and of which we are assured. Very well, now then he goes on, likewise. And here at once we are confronted by a question. What exactly is the connection introduced by the word likewise? And uh, here there are two main suggestions which have been put uh, before us by the various commentators, and two suggestions, obviously, that must arise in the mind of any thoughtful, careful student of the Scripture. The first explanation, and the one which seems to be the more popular, is this one, that the Apostle here is still continuing with the theme he's already been dealing with. He has been finding out, they say, that the way in which we face these trials and tribulations is by means of hope. That hope is the thing which comforts us and sustains us and enables us to go on. And as we've been seeing and as I've just reminded you, that is perfectly right and perfectly true. It is this hope that revives our courage by the way. And then they say that what the Apostle is saying here is this, that not only does hope help us in that way to face these trials and troubles and tribulations, but that the Holy Spirit also comes in at that point and helps us and aids us. Uh, here we are in this pilgrimage. Here we are in the fight of faith. And various things are happening to us. Persecutions, disappointments, trials of various descriptions. And uh, these things drive us to prayer. But the question is, how to pray? 
Well, then it's just at that point, uh, according to this interpretation of the likewise, that the apostle gives an answer. He says, it's all right. The Spirit comes in at that very point and gives you this additional aid. So you're not left merely with your faith, which leads you to the hope and your assurance of it. You've got this further aid, which is provided by the operation of the Spirit in connection with our prayer life. And of course, there is no question but that that is true. But there's a second possibility, a second way in which we can interpret the exact connotation of this connecting link, this word likewise. And that is that the apostle is not so much continuing here what he's just been dealing with and giving us that additional comfort and consolation, but that rather he is continuing with the series of things that he's been saying about the Holy Spirit himself. So that in one sense he, he is taking up a new matter here. Not that it's altogether new, of course, because every part of the Christian life is uh, intimately interrelated. But, in general, he is uh, taking up another aspect of this whole question of the Christian's assurance and certainty. In other words, he is going back to something that, uh, in a sense, he left off halfway through verse 17. Now, you remember, let me put the connection to you. He says in 16, the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, then if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. And that sets him off in a digression on the whole question of suffering, which he deals with, as we've seen, from the beginning of verse 18 to the end of verse 25. But now he's finished with it, speaking generally. And he goes back to something that he'd left off, halfway through verse 17. What is that? Well, that is the work of the Holy Spirit in assurance. Now, I think that this second possibility is the more real one. And I say so for this reason. We have been emphasizing from the very beginning of this great chapter that the theme of the chapter is assurance of salvation. What the Apostle is here concerned to expound is that there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. That there is none now that there never will be. He, the whole object of the whole chapter is to show that our final glorification is absolutely guaranteed from the moment of our justification. That's the theme. And he shows that, as we've been seeing, in many ways. Now, the controlling factor in all these different aspects has been, in each case, the work of the Holy Spirit. For instance, you get it in verse 2. How can we be sure that there never will be any condemnation? Here's the first answer. The law of the Spirit, with a capital S, of life in Christ Jesus, hath made me free. It made me free, that aorist again. It made me free from the law of sin and death. It did it once and forever. It's a final action. Yes, I no longer belong there. I am now living this new life. 
in the realm of the Holy Spirit. Now there's the first work then that he mentions of the Spirit, but it isn't the only one. Halfway through verse 4 he comes to a second matter, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who are we? We are the people who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And he goes on, as you remember, and elaborates that whole notion, indeed until the end of verse 10. We, because we are now living this new life in the Spirit, see everything from the standpoint of the Spirit. We no longer have the mind of the flesh. We have the mind of the Spirit. We have no longer that carnal mind. We've got this other mind. And this is a guarantee again of our ultimate salvation. The moment a man is justified, the Spirit of God is in him, and the Spirit works this work of sanctification, leads him in the ways that he elaborates in those verses. That is true, as we were emphasizing when we dealt with those verses, of every Christian. For if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. But conversely, if a man is a Christian, he has the Spirit of Christ. And the Spirit of Christ is going to lead them on. Ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. And you see, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. And the Spirit enlightens the mind and leads us on, gives us a delight in the law, and thus is preparing us for that ultimate glorification. It's absolutely guaranteed. God puts the Spirit in us in order to prepare us for the ultimate glory. And then in verse 11, he puts it in terms of the ultimate resurrection even of the body. If the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. There's the ultimate guarantee again. Then you remember in verse 13, on a very practical level now, not in terms of great doctrine, but on the practical level, he says, if uh, ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit to mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. It's through the Spirit we are enabled to mortify the deeds of the body. And then, of course, we all remember how he comes to this new section at verse 14. This is one of the most wonderful and glorious uh, proofs of our ultimate uh, glorification and full uh, salvation. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. This sonship. And you remember he says that the Spirit does two things about this. He gives us the spirit of adoption. Parallel, you remember, with Galatians 4. He hath sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. It's we who cry the Abba, Father, but it's the Spirit who leads us to do this. But over and above that, the Spirit himself beareth witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. That highest and most glorious form of assurance a believer can ever have. It's the work of the Spirit. It is this peculiar witness of the Spirit with our spirits that we are the children of God. Well now you see that in all these ways the Spirit is guaranteeing our ultimate glorification and giving us an assurance of it even while we are in this world of time. Very well. The next thing he mentions is in verse 23. Not only they, he says, but ourselves also which have the first fruits of the Spirit. 
even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. The Spirit gives us a foretaste of that glory. He gives us the first fruits. And what an assurance we get through that. What a comfort, what an encouragement. Yes, but more than that, what a guarantee. God has given us a first installment. And all God's character is in the installment. God is pledging himself to give us all that is coming by giving us this first installment. It's the most wonderful assurance again and guarantee of our ultimate glorification. Well now then, you see, he's been telling us a series of things that the Spirit does to us in this whole connection. And now he says, likewise, there's something else that he does. Likewise, as he's been doing all these other things, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. And then deals with this question of prayer. Well now, I'm not disposed to say that the first element doesn't come in there. Of course it does come in. Because the apostle is going to illustrate how the Spirit does help us in this way in the matter of prayer, in our difficulties. But I do feel very strongly that the main thrust and the main emphasis here is, as I say, in this way, still upon our ultimate glorification. You see, when we come on to verse 28, we shall find he takes up another aspect. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, even to them who are called according to his purpose. That's quite a different form again. You're getting them one after another. Now here, I say, is again a very wonderful guarantee of the end, our final, complete sanctification, glorification, our perfection, our deliverance, body, soul, and spirit from everything that evil and sin have ever done to us. Now this is, uh, uh, I think, uh, an important point because it will help to bring out, I think, the richness of the teaching that the Apostle gives us in these uh, two verses. Here we are, in other words, you see, all of us engaged in this pilgrimage we are traveling through this world as pilgrims. And what is more important for us than that we should know how to keep in touch with God, our Heavenly Father? What is more vital to us than to know how we can receive God's blessings? Now, that's the question. How is this to be done? If you like, this whole question of prayer is in many ways involved in this matter. Now this is a great problem to many people. Indeed, it's a problem to all of us. I suppose that in many ways prayer is one of the greatest problems of all. Though you've probably heard the recent statements which give the impression that it's quite simple. That all you've got to do is to start doing it and go on doing it. That there's no problem involved in prayer. That isn't what I find in the scriptures. And I think... Uh, the moment we really examine our personal experiences, we shall find that prayer in certain aspects can be the greatest problem of all. And uh, here the apostle will tell us uh, something about that. Well, he says it's all right. There is a great message of comfort and of consolation with regard to this as there is with regard to everything else. Very well, what does he say? Let's divide it up like this. What's the problem? 
What is the problem by which we are confronted? Whence arises our problem? Well, he says it arises primarily from our infirmities. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. What does this mean? It is probably right to say that uh, the Apostle put this in the singular, not in the plural. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmity. In other words, he's not so much talking about the varied manifestations of our infirmity as the infirmity itself, which gives rise to the particular infirmities. That doesn't matter very much. But I think it is a help to realize that he's referring to our general state and condition, which is one of infirmity. Now, here's a good commentary on it in Hebrews 5.2 where the author there is uh, describing what is necessary in the high priest. He puts it like this. He says he must be one who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. It's the same word exactly as we have here. Now then, what does it mean? Well, of course, it means primarily weakness. Lack of strength. That's what's meant by infirmity. Now, it's important we should understand what this means. Infirmity is not sinful in and of itself. There is a difference between infirmities and sin. Our infirmities may lead us to sin, but our infirmities in and of themselves are not sinful. They are undoubtedly the result and the consequences of the original fall of man. Because there were no infirmities in man as God made him. He made him perfect. But one of the tragedies of the fall is that uh, this particular consequence has ensued. That everybody born into the world after the fall of man is compassed by infirmities. There are certain weaknesses, lack of powers, certain disabilities and inabilities that result from the fall. Now that's what's primarily meant by infirmity. So we mustn't regard it as sinful in and of itself. The fact that we have certain infirmities is not counted as particular sins to us. Very well then, what do they mean? What do they include? Well, again, we mustn't think of this only in a physical sense. We can't exclude the physical. The physical comes in, but it isn't, uh, it isn't essentially physical. It is much more spiritual than that. It really means the various limitations from which we suffer as the result of the fall and of sin. And it includes many things. The most important of all is ignorance and inability to understand. These infirmities of ours lead to a great deal of suffering in this life and in this world, even in the Christian. Though we are saved and though our salvation is absolutely certain and sure, Though we are dead to sin, dead to the law, dead to any possible condemnation, we are still not perfect. We are still 
encompassed with many infirmities. That is why, you see, he says in verse 23, that even we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. Now, these infirmities, as I say, may arise from the body. They may arise from weakness, tiredness. They may arise from illness or from disease. And because of the intimate relationship between the mind and the soul and the spirit of man, nothing can happen to the one part without its having its repercussions on the other. And thus we often find ourselves waking up in the morning in a dull condition, dull in every respect, dull in doing our ordinary work, still more dull when we try to read the Bible or to pray, that's an infirmity. We haven't sinned, we just wake up like that, and you've no control over it. The various conditions of the body in this way, in this way affect our functioning. And this is what is meant by this infirmity. Not only that, things happen to us. Other people do things, circumstances are so arranged that they become a discouragement to us. We become perplexed. We don't know what to do. We don't know where to turn. Well, and the result is that because of our lack of understanding and of knowledge, these things affect us in a depressing manner, and thus we groan within ourselves. Even we who've got the first fruits of the Spirit, and we long for the day which is coming, that glorious day which is coming, when we shall be delivered even from these infirmities, as well as from every other manifestation of sin in the whole and the entire man. In other words, things try us as they do because of our infirmities. Now, a very interesting point that arises just here is this. As to what was true of our Lord himself, cast your minds back to what we dealt with when we were dealing with verse 3 of this great chapter. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, I interpreted that to mean this. He didn't say in the likeness of flesh, he said in the likeness of sinful flesh. He deliberately said that there, as he didn't say it in Philippians 2, when he's dealing with the same point, I believe, in order to include this very notion of infirmities. Our Lord was entirely free from sin. But I do believe he knew about some of these infirmities to which we are subject and to which we are heir. And that, of course, is essential in his work as our great high priest and representative. That's why I'm so concerned that we should realize that infirmities are not sinful. Well, very well. There, then, is the main cause of our trouble. The difficulties, the problems, the disappointments, and so on in the Christian life arise mainly because of our infirmity. But now the Apostle takes up a, a very special manifestation of that infirmity. The way in which that infirmity tends to show itself most acutely and perhaps most frequently. What is that? Well, here it is that because of our infirmity, we know not what to pray for as we ought. That's the one he's particularly interested in. 
There are many others, as I've told you, but here's the one he takes up. And of course it is the crucial one. Because there is nothing that is more important than our relationship with God. Our ability to speak to God and to listen to God. All these communications between us and God that we subsume under the name of prayer or our prayer life. Now then, here is the particular manifestation of infirmity that leads perhaps to the greatest perplexity of all in most of us and to our greatest trial. We know not what to pray for as we ought. Now then, here's an important phrase. And we must be clear about the translation here. Now I've read to you the translation of the authorized version. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. Authorized version. Your revised version puts it like this. We know not how to pray as we ought. Slightly different, isn't it? We know not how to pray as we ought. New English Bible. We do not even know how we ought to pray. That takes us a little bit further away still from this, doesn't it? We do not even know how we ought to pray. But I'm here once more to defend the authorized version. Because it seems to me it's the one that brings out the real point that is being made by the apostle. Now, take those other two translations and the Revised Standard Version is the same as the Revised Version, and many others have followed the Revised Version in exactly the same way. We know not how to pray as we ought. Or this new translation. We do not even know how to pray, how we ought to pray. I don't know, I, I, I trust I'm not uh, guilty of any prejudice in this matter. But these translations seem to me to make the point much too general. We know not how to pray as we ought. I don't think the apostle meant to say that, and I'm suggesting he didn't even say it. Our trouble is not that we don't even know how we ought to pray. That isn't the trouble. Well, what is it? Well, it isn't a question of prayer in general that he's taking up. Well, what is the problem? Well, the problem is this. What to pray for in particular, and in certain given circumstances. Now, this isn't just my idea. I maintain that what the Apostle actually wrote in the original compels us to say this. Now, take this word, what. You will find in the original that the article is before it. It is the what. We know not the what we ought to pray for as we ought. Now, why did the Apostle say the what, if he only meant what or how? Surely, he is directing attention to something particular. There it is, I say, for you in the original. The what. We know not the what to pray for, as we ought. Or, or take this phrase again, as we ought. I think that will substantiate and help to prove what I'm suggesting to you. What does he mean by we know not the what to pray for, as we ought? He's not referring how we ought to pray. No, no. As we ought means this, what is necessary in the nature of the case, this particular case, what is necessary in the nature of the case. There's one possible translation, here's another. We know not the what to pray for according to or in proportion to our needs. Now A.T. Robertson, the great uh, Greek scholar in America, puts it like this. 
we know not what to pray for as it is necessary. As it is necessary. But indeed, I like J.N. Darby, I think, still better. He puts it like this, as is fitting. As is fitting. And then A.S. Way, who, while he translates, uh, perhaps paraphrases as well, I, but I think he's got the whole spirit of the thing almost perfectly. He's just got the, the apostle meaning. Way translates it like this. We are not even sure what boons we should what boons should rightly be the object of our prayers. Now, that's the thing. Here we are, he says, we don't know exactly what we ought to be praying for in this particular state or condition. That's the thing. That's the perplexity. Now, surely this is really a very important point. The trouble with the Christian is that he, not that he doesn't know how we ought to pray. Surely every Christian ought to know how to pray. I say once more that uh, one's even beginning to doubt this because we are instructed to pray, start at once and to go on and we're not told a word about the Lord Jesus Christ or his blood. It seems that any one of us can go straight into the presence of God. We don't need any mediator. We don't need any blood of sacrifice. We need no atonement. If you want to pray, start at once and go on. Well, I think people who speak like that need to be taught how to pray. But that isn't what the Apostle is talking about. The Christian ought to know how to pray. He knows this. That there is only one way of entry into the presence of God, and that is by the blood of Jesus. There's no other way. Doesn't matter who you are, nor what you are. It is only by the blood of Jesus. You can't enter to the presence of God apart from that. That's how you pray. But that isn't our difficulty, is it? As Christians, we know how to pray, but this is the problem. In my peculiar circumstances, what am I to pray for? Isn't that your problem? Yes, says the apostle, that's the problem. Especially when you're in these trials and troubles and tribulations, and everything's going against you. You know how to approach God in prayer, but your difficulty is... What exactly? The what to pray for as is fitting, according to in proportion to our need, as it is necessary at this particular point. Isn't that our problem? Now that's where our infirmity comes in. Because this is one of the most perplexing of all the problems that ever faces us in the Christian life. Here I am in my position. What exactly do I pray for? Now let me show you something of the difficulty. Why do I say that this is such a difficult matter? This, the what? Well, here's one reason, you see. We may pray for the wrong thing because we don't understand. We don't always know what is best for us, what is right for us. And we may very well pray for the wrong thing. Greater men than any of us here tonight have done so. Let me give you one example immediately. Moses. This is what I read about Moses in Deuteronomy 3, verses 23 to 26. Make a note of them. Read them up. And I besought the Lord at that, at, at that time, saying, O Lord God, 
thou hast begun to show thy servant thy greatness and thy mighty hand. For what God there is in heaven or in earth that can do according to thy works and according to thy might. I pray thee, let me go over and see the good land that is beyond Jordan, that goodly mountain and Lebanon. That was Moses' prayer. You see, he's admiring the works of God. God had dealt very wonderfully and very gloriously with him. He says, what God is there in heaven or in earth that can do according to thy works. Then he brings in his petition. I pray thee, let me go over and see the good land that is beyond Jordan, that goodly mountain and Lebanon. But listen, but the Lord was wroth with me for your sakes and would not hear me. And the Lord said unto me, let it suffice thee. Speak no more unto me of this matter. Now that's a very strong and a very stern rebuke. God silenced Moses. He said, don't you offer that petition anymore. Speak no more unto me of this matter. Let this suffice thee. Never make that request again. It's not going to be granted. The Lord was wroth with me. Moses offered a petition there which he shouldn't have offered. That's the kind of difficulty that the apostle is dealing with. But come, let me give you another. One with which you are more familiar. It is perhaps in many ways the classic, uh, classical example of this very matter with which we are dealing. Turn to Second Corinthians chapter 12. Verse 1. It is not expedient for me doubtless to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. Then he goes on to say about the men... Fourteen years back, which had had these wonderful revelations, he's talking about himself. He says, of such an one will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory, but in mine infirmities. For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool, for I will say the truth. But now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that he heareth of me. And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations... There was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. That's a perfect commentary on the verse that we're looking at. Yeah, you see, the apostle was in trouble. Thorn in the flesh comes. And he acts in a very natural way in terms of human reason. This is going to cripple my work. This is going to put a limit upon my efficacy. Obviously this is wrong. So he prays God to remove it. And he did so three times. But he is told the same thing, that he must stop offering that prayer. He's not going to be delivered. The thorn in the flesh is going to remain. And then he begins to think spiritually, and he sees that this is absolutely right. That God perhaps can do more through his weakness than he could through his strength. He understands it. And he begins to glory in the thing which formerly he'd been praying to God to remove from him. Now then, here you see lies the difficulty. What should we pray for? 
Do we know? No, because of our infirmity we don't. We don't always know what's best for us. Who would have imagined that the thorn in the flesh was a good thing for the Apostle Paul? But it was. It was necessary. And that's why it came to him. And that is why it was allowed to remain in him. So you see, we've got to be very careful. It's, it's not an easy matter. It's a very difficult matter to know the what to pray for in these particular circumstances as is most convenient, as is best for us. Very well. So that I go on to make a remark like this. This matter is difficult. And having seen that real danger of offering the wrong petition in our ignorance and weakness, I say that it is better for us with the apostle to recognize our infirmity. Let's do so also with that man who wrote the 77th Psalm. Did you notice how he put it? He was beginning to complain. He said, hath God forgotten to be gracious? Hath God clean forgotten us forever? Things were going against him. Things were going against the children of Israel. The church was in great trouble. Everybody else was succeeding. And he's beginning to think these thoughts and to give utterance to them. Then he pulls himself up and he says, and I said, this is my infirmity. I shouldn't be saying things like this. I'm speaking foolishly. It's all due to my infirmity. I don't understand. This is my infirmity. Very well, he says, I'm not going to talk like that any longer. I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. And he begins to speak to himself and to preach to himself. And he restores himself, his understanding and his confidence. Now, you see, this is the kind of problem that the Apostle is here putting before us. So that I say better than rushing into prayer and offering a wrong petition. Better to talk to ourselves about it and to consider it as the psalmist did and as Paul did subsequently. He should have done it before, but he didn't. Let's talk to ourselves about it and recognize our infirmity. And then I'd go on to put a third point like this. It is better still to acknowledge our perplexity. In other words, if you're in doubt and if you are uncertain and if you don't know the what to pray for as you ought, well, don't be afraid or don't be ashamed of admitting it and confessing it and doing so quite openly. Now, let me give you an example of the Apostle Paul doing that. That's exactly, it seems to me, what he does in writing to the Philippians in the first chapter. This is how he puts it, beginning at verse 23. He says, For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. You see, at first he's in difficulties. What shall he pray for? Here he is in prison. He is ill. He's become old before his time. Sick man. What shall he pray for? Shall he pray to the Lord to take him out of it? To be with Christ which is far better? So much seems to argue in that direction. Ah, then he remembers. Yes, but it would be better for the Philippians that I remain on earth. That I can still teach them and guide them and help them and so on. He's in a strait betwixt two. Doesn't know exactly what to hope for, what to wish, what to pray for. 
Now I say it is better, if necessary, that we should acknowledge the perplexity and take it to God and tell God that we don't know. Leave it entirely in his hands. That's much better than forcing ourselves to a decision or rushing to offer a petition that seems to us to be natural and quite good. Now, I wonder whether we are going too far when I suggest this, that we see something of this even in our Lord himself during his days in the flesh here in this world. How do you interpret John's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 27? Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Shall I say that? He answers himself and says, But for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. His soul was troubled. Here he is facing the supreme crisis. His soul was troubled. What shall I say, he says. What shall I pray? Shall I ask the Father to save me from this hour? And he asks, no, I can't do this. I came into the world in order to come to this hour. There's the difficulty. Even the eternal Son of God as Son of Man, I suggest, knew something about this perplexity. You've got exactly the same thing in the accounts of his agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was in an agony, sweating drops of blood. And his prayer is this, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass by. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Again, you see, he's in an agony of soul. Here is the moment of crisis coming. What shall he pray? And then I think we have the author of the epistle to the Hebrews putting it all very perfectly, remember, in his fifth chapter there, starting off with the high priest, but when he comes to verse 5, listen, so also Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, Today have I begotten thee, as he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, who, in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and, that, and was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, yet learned he, learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Now that's the most important statement. Though he were a son, yet learned the obedience by the things which he suffered. And in that position, he offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears. And as the result of that experience, he learned something in his capacity as high priest. Well, I'm afraid we must leave it at that for tonight. But thank God for that last point. He learned obedience. Yes, and because he learned obedience, 
he is able to help and to succor us when we find ourselves in like positions, in like states and conditions. When in moments of crisis and of difficulty, we know how to pray. That's not our problem. We know that there is a way open to us to go into the presence of God when all things seem against me to drive me to despair. I know one gate is open, one ear will hear my prayer. That's not my problem. I know that I can go into the holiest of all by the blood of Jesus with full assurance of faith, with full assurance of hope, with a holy boldness. That's not my problem. My problem is this. What exactly to pray for? What blessing to ask for? What I think may be for my good may be for my harm. I may ask something and God will say, speak no more to me about this. My grace is sufficient for me. Don't you know something about that difficulty, that perplexity? That's the problem, says the Apostle. And he raises it in order to tell us that there is a very glorious answer to it. It is that the Spirit himself maketh, Spirit himself helpeth our infirmities. He maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And what he thus produces in us is known to God and of God. Indeed, it is originated by God himself as a part of this process of our ultimate glorification. Well, God willing, we'll go on to look into that glorious answer, that most comforting and consoling statement, and, God willing, learn how to apply it in detail and in practice next week. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we do come unto thee and we come to thank thee with grateful hearts that thou hast made such perfect provision for us. O Lord, how can we thank thee enough for these things? We go on reading thy word and studying it together and when we feel at times that thou hast said everything and we have studied the last word, we find yet another. We thank thee for this blessed likewise. There is no end, O God, to thy goodness to us. Thy bounty has no limit. O oh, we pray thee, open our understanding to these things, that we may rejoice in them as we ought, and that we may derive their glorious benefit as we go on through this earthly pilgrimage, knowing what it is to groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to it the redemption of our body. Lord, receive our prayers. And now, may the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide and continue with us now this night throughout the remainder of this our short, uncertain, earthly life and pilgrimage and until we shall indeed receive the adoption even the redemption of our bodies in the final glory. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. 
All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.